hang on, my, my cat is just gonna knock things over because uh, he's hungry and so I feed him. So you're gonna hear some, some dry food. <laughs> oh, sorry, I slipped on your paw. Um, all, all at my own interviews are like this. Like, I'll be on Zoom with, like, God knows who, and, and like, my dog is jumping over the place. My, my cat is climbing on me. Um, this, this is normal. Hey, Slavic Connection listeners, it's Michelle, and I'm here today with Misha, and we had a really fascinating guest. Who did we have on? We had Max Seddon, who is Financial Times Moscow bureau chief since 2021, and he is the leading reporter for Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We talked about everything from the balance of money and power in Russia to the influence of Russian oligarchs on Putin's decision-making and the future of Russia's economy. So take a listen. It's not uh, typical Texas. You're listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies and the William P. Clement Center for National Security at the University of Texas at Austin. Okay. Do you are are you ready to get started? Do you, do you have your your recording going? Everything's good. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry, recording. Already All right, perfect. Max, welcome to the show. We're so excited to have you. I guess just to start, please just tell us about yourself. Why did you pick journalism and and how did you get into Russia specifically? Oh, well, it's uh, it's pretty simple. I, I graduated college in the middle of uh, the global recession with uh, essentially a degree in, in Sovietology. So my, my undergraduate degree is in history and, and uh, Russian language and literature. But the history I studied was mostly early, early Soviet history. So I, I learned a lot of not very fascinating, not very practical things about Soviet history under Lenin, Stalin, and uh, the, the, the uh, literature and arts of, of that period. And uh, this, this was not a very, very marketable degree, because certainly right, right after the global financial crisis that started in 2008. And uh, I, I thought about doing a, uh, a PhD in, in uh, some sort of you know, um, history uh, with, with a Russian track. I was, I was really fascinated undergrad reading uh, a lot of uh, historians like, like Arch Getty, Yak and Helbeck. I was, as, as an undergrad, it was, uh, it was very exciting to, to read a lot of it. Uh, Stephen Kotkin, of course, because uh, this was uh, you know, the wave of history of the Soviet period that, that came out after the archives started opening up in, uh, in the eighties and the nineties. And you got all of this, uh, of this, of this new research, but I wasn't, wasn't, you know, completely sure if I wanted to make the seven, the seven year commitment straight to straight to PhD track. And, uh, figured there wasn't much point doing a degree like that if, if you didn't. And, you know, this, this was sort of the rise of social, of social media. I thought all the, you know, the journalists, the academics I was, I was following, uh, frankly, they sounded about equally miserable, but I thought, you know, if you're, if you're a journalist, you're like, you know, you're traveling to see the world, like you, you are, you are meeting people, you know, who, you know, the subjects of the history books of, uh, of, of tomorrow. And, uh, also frankly, you know, I, 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 I could not get a job anywhere <laughs> with, with, with the degree that I had. So yeah, and 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 this was the case for a lot of my friends who I subsequently met, you know, starting you know, as reporters in Moscow over the last you know decade. I think this was you know, the case for a while. You had these sort of lost literature lovers who who came uh, to journalism through through that because it was uh, something that you could do in a place that you were already 
interested in it. This this wasn't limited to to journalists either. I know people people of the um, analyst sector, even even um, quite quite a few uh, Western bankers and businessmen who started doing business in Russia in in the nineties. Quite quite a few of those you know, got got into it initially through through the culture, and then they sort of drifted towards business through that. And we were, I think, part of maybe the last generation for for a while of of uh, people people like that. I I had uh, yeah, I've got quite a few friends around from around that time uh, who who wound up in journalism in Russia, you know, more or less same way that that I did. I, and I think under the current circumstances, it's going to be difficult to see that happening for for a long time. Not just because uh, being in in Russia carries so many risks these days, but also I think. The the inter, you know, the war has shifted the interests of people who study and are interested in this this region so much. So when you when you first landed in in Russia as 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 a journalist and everything, what, what were your impressions? What you know what shocked you, or, or maybe also what what were your hopes and, and dreams in this profession at at the time in which you began? Well, honestly, I just I just felt like I was constantly missing out. You know, I came I came at the tail end of the um, the of the Bolotnaya protest protest era. So I moved to Moscow. Well, I mean, I, I lived there when I was in college as well, but uh, a few years earlier. But I, I moved there as as a, as a journalist in the end of 2012, and I've been absolutely glued to all the coverage you know produced by all the great reporters of that era, like Ellen Barry, The New York Times, uh, Charles Clover, Catherine Belton, Courtney Weaver at, at the FT, and, uh, and others. And by that point, it already started to die down, and I was worried, worried that I'd missed out. So I worked at the Associated Press for, for about a year. I then went to work for, um, for BuzzFeed News back when that was just starting up, and it seemed like this really strange and outlandish proposition that, you know, no one could thought, you know, thought, you know, that never really amount to much. And we, we, we couldn't get the Russian foreign ministry to accredit us. And, and, and so I wound up in, in Ukraine in the fall of uh, 2013 uh, with, with no plan, having no idea what was going on or what, what to write about. I was uh, extremely bored for about three weeks, thinking that I missed out on everything. And that, then I quickly, quickly realized uh, that that was, that was not, not the case. And you know, really, really from, from then on, you know that was that was the start of a of a crisis that grew into the war, the, the full scale invasion that we that we see now, and that's going to be with us for some time. So I was very wrong about all that. And what was your most challenging uh, assignment or report while being in the region? That's an interesting question. I mean, I, I I definitely did some things, particularly when I was young, young and dumb, that I I didn't realize until a bit later. This was back in 2014. I was spending a a decent amount of time in in the Donbas in eastern Ukraine, uh, covering the war there, and I definitely did some some dumb things to get some some great stories that uh, were totally not worth it and could have easily got me killed. I would never do again today, such as going into the former you know, Igor Strokov headquarters right after they, they had fled uh, Slavyansk, before the uh, Ukrainian forces had demined it. That, that was incredibly stupid. Yeah, I, by all rights, I should be dead. <laughs> um, honestly, like really, not just until the war, but really up until you know, my friend Evan Gershkovich was arrested in you know, outrageous fashion by, by Russia earlier this year. We always thought... Um, not so much that we were... The, the sort of privileged class. It was more that we were just kind of lucky that, that they weren't really that much interested in us, you know. Um, and that, you know, there, there'd be all these, this um, horrible pressure 
on, on Russian journalists, uh, you know, the, the you know, Kremlin-friendly buyers would be installed at places they worked, uh, censorship would be introduced, and there, there was this very sad spectacle where, you know, for, 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 for a number of years, you know, every, every year or two, there, you, you'd have these sort of, you know, wandering tribes of, of journalists who would then all quit en masse when, when censorship came in. You know, I, I, w- I would consider ourselves very lucky because, you know, we, we thought that for a reason the government wasn't, you know, interested in us so much. Uh, or that, you know, say in the case of the FT uh, until, the, until the full-scale invasion, a lot of uh, you know, major Russian companies, uh, including a lot of uh, ones, you know, major companies owned by the Kremlin, like uh, Sparebank, uh, Rosneft, Gazprom, you know, they all had stock market listings. And, in London, and that was kind of kind of our end. That was you know um, our sort of you know, the FTR window. You know, you you would understand more about about Russia if you you know learned about you know Sparebank or or, or Gazprom uh, doing almost anything else. We 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 almost felt like we were we were kind of getting away with it, and I think that was the uh, unfortunately you know you know that turned out not to be the case. Uh, uh, there there are two American journalists uh, in, in custody now in, in Russia, Evan from the Wall Street Journal. And uh, the, the thing about this is that, you know, it's 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 a, a very different kind 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 of danger. Where, you know, I, I reported on a large number of uh, people in the Russian business world who who were arrested and, you know, they they all knew it was possible and no one ever thought it was it was, it was gonna happen to, to them. They they all thought they were gonna get um, get away with it. Uh, so I think I think um, you know, I, I I never face face that kind of you know real you know over over pressure in the way that you might you might be thinking about. And we you know, we thought that we were the the lucky ones that that uh, that we were that somehow just less a priority for the Kremlin on on the free press. And as as we know now, that turned out not to be the case. And do you think? Russians are collectively responsible for the war because you've talked about how the press has been slowly kind of the free press has been slowly pushed out and the reporters are in some cases imprisoned. Some would claim that Russians don't have uh, access to neutral information about the war or about realistic things happening on on the ground. And what was your sense while being in Russia until December? Do Russians feel like it's their war in a sense of like they embraced it or there is more of this guilt that they can't really do anything about this war? Really, um, I think I think both at the elite uh, level and you know, in Russia, Russia at large, you know, the, the, the reason that the Putin's been able to, to get away with this is because, uh, you know, for most most people, they've been able to be, you know, largely indifferent to it. It's this kind of it, it, it ranges from just just a sort of blithe ignorance, you know, from some people to, to casual acceptance from, from others. You know, if you are um, anti-war minority uh, that, that was really violently suppressed, you know, thousands of them have been arrested, uh, possibly more than a million people have uh, left uh, Russia since the war started, you know, many of them for fear of going to prison, though, though not all of them. If you are an, an elite Russian uh, living living in Moscow, there's this um, wonderful uh, photographer, uh, Alexander Gronsky, uh, who uh, earlier this year he has this picture for me that really sums it up. You've probably seen a meme similar to one I'm about to describe, but this you know happened in real life. So there are two stands in this you know very nice renovated park you know somewhere somewhere in Moscow. One is to, to go to volunteer to uh, sign up for the war. 
It's, uh, you know, completely empty. There, there's a young woman sitting there looking very bored. And she, and she's sitting right next to the, the other stand that the uh, mayor's office is, uh, set up, which is selling strawberries, uh, because they were in season in, in the early summer. And there's this huge line of people buying, buying strawberries and the, uh, wealthy, Urban elites, you know, they've they've been able to uh, you know, very many of them, if they're not actively against the war, if they haven't expressed some kind of you know public position, been going to protests, you know, posting things on online about the war, they've largely been able to to get away with it. And that was uh, you know really really the thing that struck me most on my visits to Moscow uh, several months out into the war last last year it was how it was it was possible to kind of you know you know, for a lot of people cl- you know close your eyes and act like everything was 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 happening as as normal and you know for you know for some people uh that that required a kind of you know, uh, particularly the upper echelons of the elite that requires a kind of willful blindness you know for other people in the middle class you know re- really their lives haven't actually changed that much you know uh, you, you can still get coca-cola in the stores even if it might be from from Turkey or 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 Iran or uh, even even uh, from from occupied Ukraine, you know, uh, some some places you'll see it, you know, where where it was produced in Ukraine, and they took it from uh, you know Kherson or, or somewhere like that. And then um, this is this is something that you know I I didn't I didn't travel I didn't I don't have you know any real any real direct experience of this, but there's been a lot of reporting done on this by independent Russian journalists. Uh, if if you look at uh, what's what's happened in in the Russian regions that have been affected by the war, you know where where they have disproportionately recruited a lot of people from from these impoverished rural regions of of Russia. The the war is you know. You know, you know, twenty, you know, twenty plus years of uh, you know creeping dictatorship have convinced so many people that they can't do anything to to affect society. I believe it's um, Grigory Yudin, who's an uh, excellent uh, sociologist, has, has said for a lot of people, you know, the war is, is is like rain. You know, it's it's unpleasant. It's something to be best avoided or or to mitigate the the fallout from it. But uh, you certainly can't do anything about it yourself. And um, Plus, plus for a lot of people, you know, in, in these impoverished regions with the salaries they're on offer to, to, to fight in the war or to work in the defense industry, those, those are, are really transformative for, for a lot of people's families, you know, who are, who are just living on, on the edge. I don't think that necessarily, you know, for the, you know, um, anyone who's looking to make any more judgments on them certainly won't want to, you know, take that as an excuse. And I'm not saying it is, but it's, uh, really this kind of, it's a sort of uh, toxic cocktail of apathy, indifference, and you know the way that you know the war has just has just become a part of everyday life. Whether it's something that you know you're able to you know just act like as the background and and not really notice it, or or whether it's it's something that's that's become this this kind of normal part of it because you're involved somehow. And that's that's what Russia's been very successful in doing, I think. Could you describe the role of oligarchs? Because we know you've interviewed a couple of important oligarchs uh, since the start of the invasion, but also just in general, those people have connections to the West and their assets and lifestyles have been affected by uh, Western sanctions and the general sentiment against them in the West. And they actually matter. Putin listens to their voice. He assembled them for a meeting right before the invasion to reassure that everything is going to be all right. What what sense do you get from them about this war? Are they with it? And what impact do they have regarding the war? 
Well, I think, I think, you know, certainly if any of them were here, they, they tell you, and uh, this would be the point where I agree with them that actually, you know, that the individually they, they have very, very little, little impact at, at, at the end of the day, you know, Putin hasn't, you know, he, he will meet with them, but, he, but they have, but uh, very few people have any kind of, have any, have had any kind of real influence on, on Putin. And, you know, since the first sanctions in 2014, you know, they, they really became a, a badge of pride. You know, you might, might have taken, Gennady Timchenko's private jet away, as he famously complained when he was sanctioned in 2014. But but the idea that that he was going to to tell Putin to to give Crimea back so that he could fly to Switzerland again, it you know that just that just turned out not to be what happened. Instead, you know the people who were really close to him they they rallied around Putin. And when you're talking about you know the broader swathe of of oligarchs, you know who who really you know have lost uh, whatever political influence they had, the vast majority of them. Really, really, you know, in the early years of Putin's regime, you know, if, if, if they had, you know, I mean, we'll never know because they, because almost none of them did it. But, um, I think, I think, um, yeah, they, uh, you know, they would argue, uh, certainly that, you know, that wouldn't have, uh, had, had any effect. But then if you look at, if you look at the ones who, um, you know, you know, recently the most famous example of this was uh, Mikhail Friedman, who uh, is is uh, from Ukraine, you know, one of the richest men in Russia, but he'd been living in the UK for for the last ten years. He made some pretty cautious comments, but he was one of the few oligarchs who did even that at the start of the war. You know, where where he didn't criticize the war, but he said he wanted it to to end. He he was collecting letters from from people like like Alexei Navalny's team in his campaign to fight to fight sanctions against him and. And he, he kind of became the poster child for, for Putin's stance on this because Putin has always said, you know, for, for, you know, uh, even before the first sanctions came in to the oligarchs, you know, you, you should stop, you know, you know, you'll, you'll never be one of them in the West. You, you should stop trying to build, build your future there. You're, you know, the only place you is, you know, back at home with, with, uh, with us in, in, in Russia. And, uh, with, with Friedman, he made some pretty pointed comments in the State of the Union address. In February, he's saying you will, you know, the, uh, you can sit all you want in your uh, big, big mansion with your, with your, you know, your frozen bank accounts. You can buy all of the counts and the earls that that you want. That uh, you, you will never be more than just, you know, second class citizens there. Uh, you know, the the only future you have is is in Russia, where uh, it's it's been made pretty clear to the oligarchs that uh, at the very least they have to. Not, not criticize and not get in the way of, of the war effort. And you, you saw with, with Friedman going back, you know, Putin, uh, earlier this month, Putin made some comments on that and essentially said that, you know, he, he'd been proven, proven right. These oligarchs who, who would not, they were too Western for Russia and they were too Russia, Russian for the West, you know, with, with only a tiny handful of exceptions, uh, almost. None of them, you know, made, made any substantive criticism of the war. And if you, you know, you would ask them, you know, why, why they hadn't, why they didn't do that. I, I, I got the impression that, you know, many of these people, they were always just hoping because they would look at, you know, their, their friend, you know, such and such Oliver, who wasn't sanctioned, who hadn't said anything. And he's, you know, living, living in, uh, Switzerland or wherever and, uh, or Florida. And he's doing just fine. And, uh, he's not sanctioned and everyone's forgotten about him. And they, they'd want to be like that guy. Or they'd look at some of the few oligarchs who have beaten sanctions and, uh, managed to do so without criticizing the war, like, uh, Grigory Biryoskin just, just happened, uh, a couple months ago. Yeah. And they, and they, and they'd rather do that because they didn't want, you know, at the end of the day, you know, these are people who've put to, to build a, a giant empire. You know, you, 
even in Russia, you know, you need more than just political connections. You know, you also have to be putting, you know, your, your, you know, the goal of building the empire ahead of everything else. And I think for a lot of these people, you know, that, that got in the way of, of these broader questions of, of, of moral clarity that, you know, that it was just as, uh, Alexinkov, the, the, uh, banking tycoon, you know, who's the only one to have really spoken out against the war, told them, uh, was, was, was the right thing to do. And they, and they kind of lost track of that. Not, not only has this left them kind of stuck in Russia, you talk to a lot of these people, uh, they've, they've kind of, you know, accepted their, their role in the war. They, you know, if they could end the war, you know, they, uh, they would. But, but you, you hear, you know, this sort of resigned acceptance. To, to the war and they get much more animated talking about sanctions and, and how, and how wrong the sanctions against them are. And the irony is this isn't, you know, any help because if, if you, if you look at one, one trend that's been happening recently, a lot of, you know, prominent Russian, Russian businessmen are, are having their, their assets just taken away from them. I, I have a new favorite phrase to describe, you know, because this isn't just, you know, opponents of the regime like, like Hodorkovsky or someone like that. These are people who've never been against the regime, haven't really criticized the war, been, been entirely loyal. And there's this great, uh, Russian, Russian phrase to ask, you know, you ask why do the prosecutors take, take their assets away? And it's, um, you know, uh, they didn't, uh, see Kyle enough. You know, it's this kind of new proletarian elite, you know, the, the you know, old school oligarchs who, who really investment banks, uh, all, all of these big, big investors opening businesses, buying houses in, in the West, you know, like, 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 no, no one needs that in Russia anymore. You know, the economic model is, is, is very different these days. And it's, uh, a much more, you know, hard knuckle way of doing, of doing business. Speaking of this hard knuckle model that, that you're talking about, what what do you see the effect will be on Russia in the next five to ten years? Like, what is Russia going to look like? This war drags on, and you know they're they're internalizing all of their <laughs> their assets, everything, you know, onshoring all all of their their production and whatever. Like, what what is going to happen to Russia and the global economy? Well, if you look at what the sanctions have done have done to Russia, you know they've they've cut Russia out of. Uh, U.S. Uh, of, of the U.S. dominated uh, the U.S. dominated economy, so that's you know like markets and, and and financial systems. But they haven't cut cut Russia out from the global economy at all. And what we what we've seen is that that is radically re, you know, um, reshaping you know what the uh, countries go, you know, going to look like because because for years it was you know the entire economic model was selling commodities, primarily oil and gas, to to the West and, and, and spending the proceeds. Now they can't do that, certainly to the same extent anymore. The, the shift has, has made Russia more dependent on other countries while allowing, you know, strangely for, for a lot of Russian people, life to continue, you know, largely as normal. And this sort of, you know, the calculation that the Kremlin has, has made is that people are really prepared to put up with, with, with a lot. It's, it's a very different society from somewhere like, like Ukraine, which has a history of these, you know, anti-colonial, Revolts where the institute of these sort of you know ground up civil uh, institutions like the Kramada have always been uh, important in, in Russia. You have uh, this this you know, always very centralized uh, uh, empire and this with uh, a strong police state and always very atomized society. And so what that means, you know, one of one, one of the uh, funniest examples is a uh, paper. So so for uh, the. Um, uh, uh, 
of a lot of the components that you need to make, you know, the nicest, shiniest, whitest paper. You can't get that anymore. And uh, this has been, you know, this was noted quite a lot last year. The paper was getting a lot more yellow in in Russia. This isn't because, you know, obviously they have lots of trees, you know, they can manufacture the paper, but the quality of the paper depended on, on imports. But, uh, you know, is, is anyone going to go and throw a Molotov cocktail uh, at Putin's motorcade over that? No, they're just going to learn to cope with the yellowing paper. And, and so gradually Russia is, is becoming more and more dependent on uh, the countries that, you know, haven't joined sanctions and uh, they are these suppliers of these lower quality imports. So if you look at you know, even China, right, which is, the, which is the biggest example. So if you look at Huawei, which, you know, despite the various you know, sanctions against it, is still a big international company. Even Huawei, which was one of the, one of the big three 5G suppliers in Russia before the war, uh, largely scaled back its, its presence in, in Russia because it doesn't really want any more international sanctions. So if you talk to people in the communications industry in, in Russia, you know, 5G at some point, it is going to happen. They're going to you know, be, be well behind us, but you know there is going to be something. Um, you can import equipment. It's not from a top end Chinese five G supplier, but it's you know these these like second third tier companies who aren't going to be too bothered. They get sanctioned because for them, you know, having this nice little corner of a sanction market is 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 worth enough for them. So I've had it described to me as you know four point two G, four point three G, and that's you know that's you know, the other high tech equivalent of all of all this paper. Servers are a great example. Um, a lot of a lot of people are still very much hoping that uh, the war will end at some point in the medium term, and the sanctions will be rolled back because American servers are just just so much better than their than their Chinese counterparts. And if you're running a big technologically dependent business like like an IT company, a bank, you you don't want to uh, have have to migrate. That's going to be incredibly incredibly costly. They they essentially legalize smuggling. And it's this kind of you know pirate economy, and 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 so what happens is you know you, you you've had this explosion of you know Western Western made uh, restricted technology and and, and uh, all sorts of things that you know um, um, aren't restricted on on paper, but a lot of reputable suppliers will buy like consumer goods. Uh, you you have this whole industry of, of, of smugglers where where they ship it through these third countries that aren't part of the sanctions like Turkey, the United Arab Emirates, uh, Central Asia, the Caucasus, and also a lot of it is you know, coming you know, coming from the EU and even going through European countries that have that have borders with Russia. And we, we wrote about this a few months ago. It's it's uh, uh, all you got to do. You know you don't have to be you know the greatest journalism genius in the world. You like put on the chart the, the goods that the, that the European country says it exports to a Central Asian country and what the Central Asian country says it is getting. And uh, then then you realize that when you see this big difference on the graph, that uh, the difference is stuff that was marked. That was going through Russia on the way to Central Asia, actually just staying in Russia. In the energy industry, if you look at something that's very technologically advanced, like a Siemens LNG compressor, uh, is, is a Chinese one going to be as good? No. But if you get two Chinese LNG compressors and you put them together, is it going to get you enough? Like, like it's going to be all right. It's not going to be as good as one Siemens, but you know they're going to make do with what they've got, and they've proven remarkably resilient at, at doing that. And it's something that 
you know, you know coupled with you know the you know, high prices on oil and the uh, success they've had in still getting a lot of countries around the world to buy Russian commodities exports. This is something that's still funding uh, the the Russian the Russian war machine, and that's what's uh, it's it, it is a large part of uh, what is is uh, sustaining this huge war budget they've announced for the next few years. Wow, that's a whole lot to think about for sure. Um, we just want to thank you, Max, so much for your valuable time. And yeah, we, we appreciate you sharing your insights. Nice for having me. The Slavic Connection is part of the Texas Podcast Network. The conversations changing the world. Brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this program represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit us online at slobxradio.com. Thank you. The Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies condemns the Russian Federation's military invasion of Ukraine. We stand in support of the people of Ukraine who are fighting for their lives and sovereignty in the face of the unjustified invasion by Russian military forces. Hope your hope your cat is uh, eating and satisfied now. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, okay, so so how about this? Uh, we had Max Seddon, who is... Uh, wait, is it Seddon or Sedan? It's Seddon. Oh Seddon. 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 God. Okay, okay, Seddon.